Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. The Progress Theory returns with the Legends episode. Here, we're meeting performance nutritionist and researcher David Dunn, and we discuss social media and how it can be used to provide behavioral interventions when helping athletes develop good relationships with nutrition. In this episode, we discuss the pros and cons of social media when it comes to nutrition and how David and a number of other collaborators have joined forces to utilize social media to inform better behavioral interventions and how that can improve nutritional strategies. And from this, they've developed the Hexus Performance app, which will be out later this year. So if nutrition is your area of interest and know that behavior is so important for nutrition and it's not just about what you know about nutrition, then this is the episode for you. As always, like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on Instagram at The Progress Theory and download all of our other podcast episodes and obviously join the journey. So here's for our next Legends episode on The Progress Theory Show. This is David Dunn. David, how are we? Good, good. Thanks for having me. Oh, not a problem. I've actually really wanted you on this podcast for quite some time. And I'll tell you why. Last time we saw each other was at St. Mary's, wasn't it? And I think either I had gone for a run on the track or you had, and we passed and sort of caught up. And I think at the time you were just starting off your PhD. And one of the key things that stood out to me when you were describing it was your work with uh, professional athletes. Uh, you would work as a nutritionist with the professional athletes. And you kind of said, like, it's not the knowledge which is affecting nutritional habits of athletes. It's their perception of nutrition, perception of nutritionists, and their behaviors, which are the real key things which affect someone's eating habits. And that really stuck in my head because I was like, oh, that really does make sense. I don't know much about nutrition, but I look at it and think, well, you know, you know how to eat relatively healthily. So why is that hard? Why do people struggle? And there's a very distinct layer to it that I think a lot of people don't know, which I think is what your research is about. So I was like, I've got to get you on this podcast and discuss this a little bit more. But before we go into discussing that in a lot of detail, uh, do you want to give like an overview of yourself? Yeah, yeah. So I suppose when I'm not attempting to run around a track and, <laughs> and catch up in behind closed doors. Uh, my background is as a performance nutritionist. So I've been working across a, a wide variety of, of professional and Olympic sports in the UK, Ireland and, and the US for the last eight, nine years. And like you said, sort of recently gone back to, to sort of further my education and I don't know, f- you know, suffer my sins and go for a PhD, hmm. which has been fascinating. And I suppose alongside that now, we've really tried to to spin out some of the lessons into a new app, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get on to later. Yeah, definitely. God, there's so many things to start off there. Shall we start yeah. off with your PhD? Because I kind of introduced, that was one of the interests. And I know when we've talked about it um, outside of the podcast, you've said how many different directions that the PhD has gone in. Do you want to give like an overview of where your PhD has gone? Because yeah. I, I know where it started, but I don't know where it's gone since. Yeah, sure. And I, look, I remember that conversation at the track and it's because there's, there was, I mean, the conversation we had was, was very much around behaviors and it is, mm. you know, most of us go through university and we will get our degree, you know, our undergraduate, our postgraduate, maybe PhD to, to go work in elite sport. And we've got this massive bank of knowledge and it's very easy for us to go in. We'll do our presentations. We'll have our consultations and, and we can improve someone's understanding. We can help somebody know what to do, when to do it, why they should do it, but it still doesn't mean they're going to do it. Mm. Um, so, so knowledge doesn't necessarily translate to behavior that well at all. And one thing that really struck with me over the last few years as well is, you know, on the flip side of that, 
somebody might not know what to do, but they could still do the right thing. Mm. Yeah. So I suppose from my perspective, that the main driver behind going into, I suppose, taking on the PhD was I was fascinated that there was other things that were influencing athletes. And at the time, my original interest was around social media because um, I think I started back in 2014, 2015 now. So chipping away at it part-time alongside the applied roles very slowly. But the initial observation was that you could nudge or, or move somebody in a direction in your absence, but also other people might still have an effect on that. So I think the original motivation for me really was to start to understand what impact these digital technologies were having. Why were some of them having this drag along effect where somebody would see something, then they'd want to do it, even though they knew what to do before it. Mm. And I think over, over the last few years, and like I said, where it started, where it's got to, what started really looking at social media and, and digital technology, it's kind of broadened a little bit that social media wasn't necessarily the thing that was controlling the impact. It was really the delivery of these behavioral interventions and, and you know how behavioral interventions are designed, developed, and delivered to actually target behaviors. Now, they can be delivered through social media or another app or multiple technologies or, or in person as well. So the way the PhD has kind of led me has kind of gone from that initial stage of trying to understand what practitioners were doing and how athletes were perceiving that to then starting to understand how to build and deploy large-scale behavior systems with a data science approach. Because I think the other thing there is now that we have this technology available to us, it doesn't make sense for us not to use it. We as practitioners can make our delivery of interventions scalable and we can make it continuous through technology. Now, we might not be able to make it human, but I think that's where humans and computers probably need to start to learn to work together in this sort of hybrid coaching capacity. But we'll see where that goes over the next few years. But yeah, certainly at the start, it was very much delving into into social media and how it was being used by practitioners. And I mean, that was really interesting because it was like this ground up approach where because these new technologies were available, practitioners had just adopted it. There, it was like natural. I now deliver some of my service through, mm. at the time it was, you know, Facebook groups. Then it went to Instagram a little bit and then mm. back to WhatsApp. And I think we had a good number um, out of all the nutritionists that we got. And there was about 44 who were working at the highest level of elite sport in the UK. I think there was like an 89% adoption rate. And of that 89%, like 97% of those reported it as being effective. Mm. But then when we tried to sort of find out why was it effective, people didn't know how to measure effectiveness. So there was this big gulf between what are we actually doing digitally or are we just slapping mud at a wall, seeing what sticks and we know social media is popular. So we'll deliver through that. So that was, that was fascinating, fascinating to get some, some qualitative insights from practitioners. And, and since then we've, we've really tried to dig into that a little bit more to build solutions that will actually help practitioners in this space, because there is only so much time in the day. Mm. And, you know, the, the amount of time that we spend stuck behind a computer building resources to do follow-ups for, a certain player or a certain athlete, you know, that could be time spent with another athlete actually building a relationship, getting to know them, building that trust and actually being a little bit more human. So I think where my head has started to go with the research from what I'm seeing is with the way the world is now, like can humans be really good at being human, um, especially in that practitioner sense? And can we integrate and sort of optimize that integration of technology to support some of the more algorithmic based tasks in our day okay with out of the out of that 97 percent that said that they've had real positive experiences or effectiveness with the um, use of social media was that their perception that it was successful so they didn't really know how to measure effectiveness but the nutritionist perceived what they did on social media to be effective. 97% said yes. Exactly, exactly. So it was purely subjective, purely qualitative. Yeah. And I think that was really interesting because we started to follow up and you know, we went through a, a thematic analysis of the various interviews. And what we also found was that practitioners actually lacked behavior change training. 
So even though they said that it was being effective, the intervention wasn't necessarily being quantified. And actually, when it came to understanding what they were delivering, there was a fundamental lack of theory, uh, theoretical practice to design and deliver behavioral interventions digitally. Mm. But everyone was super open and interested to know more. And I think that's something we've seen over the last few years as performance nutrition is is starting to catch up a little bit in, in the behavioral science space. So myself doing a PhD and there's other people like Daniel Martin up at Liverpool, John Moores, who's done a great job uh, on his work in jockeys. Uh, Megan Bentley up at Leeds Beckett as well has done some great work. And I know Lauren Delaney is now starting a PhD as well, starting to explore these topic areas. So we're gradually starting to build up bank of us who are adding to that evidence base. Mm. But I think for me, that was the real, the real positive was that you have a group of practitioners who are, they're not afraid to adopt new technologies. So they were quite agnostic. They were willing to identify ways to, to improve practice, but also willing to put their hand up and say, look, I don't know how to get the most out of this. And I think that's the job of, of that research now is to, to highlight that there's an opportunity there that, that it could be addressed at a sort of a, a CPD level. It could be addressed at university level, but there's certainly an appreciation now that being a practitioner or a nutritionist, you need to know more than the knowledge itself. Because when it comes to the delivery of that interventions, you know, we know for a, a behavior to occur, that individual needs the capability, the opportunity, and the motivation. And right now, we're only giving them the capability. We're giving them the, the physical skills and teaching them how to cook. And we're also giving them the, the psychological skills and knowledge to know what to do. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean that they really want to do it. Um, or maybe they're not in a position where the opportunity, the barrier to that opportunity is too high. So it's going in a super interesting direction now. Look, it'll, it'll only go from strength to strength. I think one thing I'd love to see more of, because we've we've seen a lot of theory over the last few years, we've seen a lot of papers on barriers and enablers. We now just need to see interventions, like enough of enough barriers and enablers, like can we run trials? Can we see what works? What in theory is not translating into practice? And can we start to find out why? And if something is translating, what are the mechanisms and can they be reproduced in other settings? Because I'm, I'm convinced we're missing, we're missing a huge amount of opportunities in nutrition to improve our effectiveness. So to actually be more effective in changing dietary behaviors in, in athletes. And I think a lot of that is going to be left a lot of the clues are going to be around an individual's psychological profile and, and maybe online behaviors as to how how we might be better able to support them. It really does sound like there's a cultural shift happening. Yeah, yeah. Because, cultural shift, bandwagon. Yeah. <laughs> well, based on what you were saying about the the population that you interviewed for your for this particular study, you said 44, and they were like the top sports nutritionists or performance nutritionists in the UK. So they must have developed their service delivery and their habits based on years of practice. And then all of a sudden, they realize, oh, actually, we're missing a certain skill set here, which is moving into more of the behavioral space. And it almost feels like yourself and the, the researchers that you've mentioned are leading that cultural shift and into this space. And it's going to bring about a new revolution with nutrition, especially performance nutrition. Yeah. I mean, we'll wait and see. I think what everyone's great at now is, like with any research, we want to try add something novel to the field, even if it is highlighting that we've missed something. Mm. And I think everyone's everyone in that group has done and is doing you know, a good job to, to just raise awareness. I think, and this is probably a, a, like a slight bugbear of mine, if we look at and I don't think it's sports nutrition in isolation, it's probably, you know, the sports performance services. We tend to exist in this echo chamber where the idea of a multidisciplinary team is the nutritionist is going to talk to the physio, is going to talk to the S&C coach, and we're going to sit down with the coach. And we've all discussed this with the athlete. And now we've come up with this nice MDT approach to helping this athlete. Mm. But we all read the same research. We all go to the same conferences. We all run in the same circles. And actually, if we want to really push on to the next level, 
it shouldn't be about you know the physio talks to the s and c talks to the nutrition it's well actually if we're looking at nutrition does the nutritionist understand behavioral psychology we're now integrating technology what do we know about technology mm. all of these other areas like there's so many other fields that exist in business that are are hundreds thousands of years older than what we are that have all of this experience and you start to look at like performance nutrition in and of itself sports nutrition has been around for decades but this real pickup in performance nutrition it's it's really only in the last few decades that there's you know regular jobs full-time jobs before that it was it was very part-time consultancy and i think we're we're at the stage now where there's a lot of people going you're doing a great job you're doing a great job have you done this and i don't think many people have turned around and gone what are we doing like why is everyone doing an infographic <laughs> what job does that infographic do and you know when we go back to the you know jobs to be done framework and those kind of things i think it's it's good to ask more questions fundamentally to address you know why we're there mm. because if somebody could clearly turn around and say look i did this infographic for example to improve adherence recall and attention whatever it might be of that or you know it was a nudge for this point to try put that into uh, action but a lot of people were you know were producing a lot of material or doing a lot of work to tick a box and i don't think that's optimal moving forward and, and i think now that there's an awareness at least we can start to say well what actually are we doing because if joe and mary know exactly how much protein they should be eating they know exactly what foods they get it from how it should be distributed where to buy it how to cook it and they turn around and say i'm not doing it <laughs> like you know there's there is there is something missing and it's you know that motivation piece that opportunity piece there they're all to be delved into now and i think i think there will be there's we're going to pick up signals we're not going to just go from from here to here and make that big jump i think it's just going to be a consistent effort in the field now to look at it more let's share our insights so that collectively people can actually start to progress these areas so would be what i'd say mm. and coll collaborate outside of sport if you somebody can go into kpmg and and learn new lessons about you know other areas great if somebody can go into any you know any anywhere else any other fields like we we have to be open to to bringing in other lessons from other independent experts not just our echo chamber based on what you currently know based on the awareness that's being presented at the moment what does behavioral intervention look like because uh, you you listed a number of different social media platforms like whatsapp facebook groups instagram yeah. so how how are these utilized to perform a behavioral intervention based on our current knowledge of this particular area and our current knowledge of using technology? Sure. So I think when we look at any platform, a platform is really a mode of delivery. It, mm. It's nothing more, it's nothing less. The fact that people have their phones on them 24-7, it gives us access to deliver part of that intervention. And it gives us pretty much 24-7 access because you're on WhatsApp, you get that little notification, that little red dot, hmm. want to get rid of it. And we also know if we look at Lav and Wenger's situated learning theory, we know that behaviors are better to learn in the environment that that behavior will actually take place or more likely to learn a behavior when we learn it. So for example, if I was to learn to cook at home, it's probably better for me longer term than if I was to learn just going into a classroom and we all go to, you know, and sit down because I know where things are, I'll be able to replicate. Okay. So in yeah. terms of the lockdown, that presents some opportunities, do your, mm. you know, your Zoom cooking classes, et cetera. But the platforms themselves are purely delivery. If we actually take a step back in terms of a behavioral intervention, I think the fundamental first point and probably a point that's missed is defining the behavior that you're actually trying to target. So that's where a behavioral intervention has to start. And eating better is not a behavior. Sleeping more is not a behavior. It has to be specific to a context, and we should really try to define it in as much detail as possible. So, for example, if I say I want to improve my hydration, well, I need to look at that as, as a series of behaviors. Is it having a 500 ml glass of water 
first thing in the morning as soon as I wake up. So having a large glass of water upon waking, we could say, well, that's a, that is a behavior. Is that person doing that? Someone brushing their teeth first thing in the morning. So the start very much has to be on identifying a behavior and trying to specify it in as much detail as possible. Once we've done that, then we need to try understand it. So what are the other things that could impact that behavior? For example, if we go with, use, let's use that example of, of having a glass of water first thing in the morning. When somebody wakes up, it could be that, let's say they're in a halls of residence and there's a communal kitchen and now they have to go. That might be something that might limit them from going there. It might be that they're usually in a rush and they go out the doors first thing. They don't even go to the kitchen. There could be multiple factors, but we need to understand, you know, what, where, when, how, why. And once we have that, then we can start to use the theoretical tools to then build out the intervention. So we'll start to understand in terms of capability, opportunity, and motivation, we'll do a behavioral analysis. What level of physical and psychological capability do they need? So what skills do they need? What knowledge do they need, et cetera? We'll look at their levels of opportunity. So both social and physical. So do they have what they need to have in their house or wherever it needs to be? Are they in a bad friend group that says that this is not the cool thing to do and you shouldn't do it that might be influencing them or, or limiting them? And do they actually have any motivation? So both, both automatic and reflective. So mm. when they wake up, what are their automatic processes? And then in terms of reflective, when they think about it, are they then motivated enough to do X over Y? And once we start to understand what's needed, maybe what's missing, then we can start to map the results of that behavioral analysis across onto some intervention functions. So for example, if somebody doesn't know what to do, we might then deliver an education-based intervention. However, if somebody doesn't have the motivation, maybe we need to persuade them and coerce them. So we might look at different ways, or it might be that we deliver a modeling intervention. A young kid is you know, mad into football, and we say, hydration is really important. Have a large glass of water first thing in the morning. And he goes, no. And then you go, well, let's stick a poster up that says a quote from Cristiano Ronaldo. I have a large glass of water every morning. Hmm. You know, now there's a swing, and that's a modeling intervention. He's like, I want to be like him. He says he does that. So... Mm. Well, I'll do that. Um, Imagine that being very potent, very successful. Yeah, I think it's an under an underutilized tool, especially in academies. But again, it's sometimes it's hard to get the buy-in from the first team players. From experience, I think female athletes are 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 always willing to help out in modeling interventions. Male athletes are definitely tougher cookies. Um, sometimes they think they're they're more important for whatever reason. They should be on the poster. Um, yeah. <laughs> And then we might take those interventions and we'll actually then look for the active ingredients of an intervention. So there's a taxonomy of, uh, I think it's 93, 94 behavior change techniques that are outlined by the UCL Center for Behavior Change uh, team. And basically they might be the active ingredients that actually bring the intervention to life. So for example, if we're looking at education, it might be information about health consequences. So that might be a behavior change technique. We're now going to build a piece of content, deliver a message, presentation, conversation, whatever it might be to inform them about the health consequences of, of doing something. We might create pros and cons list. We might build a poster for modeling and we'll map all of those interventions against what are the relevant behavior change techniques. And to be honest, I mean, the original question about WhatsApp, Facebook, et cetera, mm. it's only now at this point that you consider how are we going to deliver it because now you know what you're actually trying to target yeah you've got a strategy to target it and you go right out of what i now know maybe some of this is best that i deliver this face to face here's a strand that i might say well i'm going to push this out on whatsapp at these times of the week because they'll just be leaving training they'll just be doing whatever i can target this message around this time and instead of sending a message about why they should do it i'm just going to send you know, a motivational poster image that's trying to persuade them or create that modeling-based intervention. So mm. I think that's where, I mean, this stuff is, is really interesting now because people don't know in nutrition the effectiveness of these different metrics. We just 
know that, well, if I give you the information, you should do it. Mm. But then we look back to, I mean, some earlier work from, I mean, earlier, well, the last decade, I think it was 2011, there was a paper by a guy called Heaney. And I mean, he just showed that knowledge and behavior are equivocal. Like, you know what to do. It really, really doesn't mean you're going to do it. And that there's a lot more with this interplay. There was a nice paper there recently, again, from, from UCL last year, and it was really looking at sort of four propositions for healthcare. And they kind of highlight that, like even motivation in and of itself, over 400 days, it's going to change 400 times, can change 400 times. So no. really the interesting thing for me now is like there's, it's so dynamic. Something can happen that just changes everything in that day. When I go to have a consultation with somebody they could be having a good day. They could be having a bad day. It's up to my practitioner skills to be able to bring them around and engage them and take that conversation or guide that conversation where it needs to go. But if we want to deliver these things at a scalable and continuous level, I think that's where now we need to consider technology beyond just the delivery of the intervention, but actually how it can help us learn more about them to tune for that individual as well and help us personalize a little bit more. Mm. It sounds like there's so many different things to consider that it's almost imperative that this is done on a one-to-one basis. So do you work within groups as well? And have you found when you do work in groups, you're not able to get to find this information from the athlete and then the, the intervention isn't as successful? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think the reality of it is you, you can't do this on a one-to-one level if you're working with 50 athletes. Mm. I mean, you could spend the whole year just setting things up. So I think if we look at, I suppose, the original research on this, so it was a paper based in 2011, put forward a model called the behavior change wheel. And at the core of that wheel sits a behavior system called the COMB model. That was originally brought out for behavioral interventions really on a on a national scale as well, looking at governmental policy and how we might help influence the public to make better decisions, as well as how we might help people stop smoking through apps and technology, et cetera. So it has to be considered at whatever level time you have available, because if you have a group, there might be common things that are a problem within the group. So for example, at a sports organization, you might identify that there's a big barrier in terms of opportunity maybe you could set up the training ground to have a better flow make it easier for people to make a good decision over a bad decision and that could have a big effect on a number of people some of the motivational intervention you deliver it's likely going to target more than one person i think if you've got the time to deliver it to one person that's fantastic but i think really if you want to start to deliver these things on a personalized basis i think unless you are almost full-time or you know have a, a very small number of athletes on your books, I think that's where technology can come in. There are new technologies now. I know there are a number of universities exploring adaptive interventions. So in, instead of just going through an RCT where you start the intervention, you finish the intervention, and you, know, you were or weren't successful, it will actually look at classifying you as a responder or a non-responder at regular time intervals to then tailor. So instead of me going from A to B, I might go via A, A1, A12 to B. You might go via A, A2, A21, A212. So you might take a completely different path. So we can still get you there, but it might be that you're responding more to a certain part of that intervention more than I am. You might need more human than me or the other way around, whatever it might be. So there's, there's lots of different things. And I think if we look at adaptive interventions, I think they're Duke NUS over in Singapore. I look on a personal level, I've been really fortunate to work alongside a very talented researcher, a girl called Xiaoxi Yan, who's doing her PhD in adaptive design and biostatistics over in Duke. And she's helped me with you know my PhD and the intervention design there. And it's really opened my eyes up to what tech can do, you know, when it's structured well. That's like part one. I think what we're starting to see theoretically now, and I'm sure we'll start to see more of these interventions over the next few years, are something called just-in-time adaptive interventions. Again, Duke are really starting to get their teeth into them now, which is, which is great. And I know there's a, a university over in the US as well 
But really, what a jitter is looking to do is instead of now waiting to classify you as a responder or a non-responder at a certain interval, it will look to ingest data about you in real time and then make a decision as to whether you are available in inverted commas um, Mm. to receive that intervention. And then it'll start to learn when you might be responding more or less. So for example, if I'm an athlete, I might have digital trace data on my phone. So my GPS data, time of day, I could see that if I want to help someone with their, let's say, acute recovery, and we're targeting getting them to to really nail their acute recovery practices, we want that behavior nailed on almost habitual. After each session, they go, they make their smoothie, whatever it might be. We could target the delivery of that intervention. I'm not saying we're there yet, but I, I, I think this is coming soon. By looking at their phone, seeing that they're at the training ground, seeing that it's at the time of day that based on their calendar they've just finished, as the car starts to move and their phone starts to move, we can say, right, that session is now completed. Push the intervention. Now let's deliver it because it's just happened. They're in the perfect moment. We know they need it. And we can start to see when did they respond? When did they not respond? When did they engage? When did they not engage? And start to learn. I think that continuous tuning intervention it's really you know pulling in this it it, this digital phenotype of that individual and then tailoring in real time based on the information available i think i don't think we're that far off i think you know a few years yeah the way social media seems to be growing so quickly and evolving i can imagine it being just a few years so they're creating apps almost to the point for the example that you gave if it's picking up that the car's moving, he's now, he or she had now uh, finished the session. So it needs to have a certain amount of information to get him to do what you want to do. Is that like an automatic thing? And I'm trying to lead this into, because I can see, I want to discuss your app or the, the app that you co-founded. Yeah. And like, is some of this technology starting to be introduced into that app? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, really now, a lot of this, these frameworks are are theoretical and they need to be tested. So I think what we're going to see is we're going to start to see these models tested over the next few years in sort Mm -hmm. of smaller trials to actually refine that sort of continuous tuning process. So what we've done in in Hexus at the minute is we have done sort of a large-scale adaptive trial. So we've looked at adapting whether someone is a responder or a non-responder to a treatment and then we've looked at sort of helping create digital phenotypes. So what types of people are using the platform more or less? And you know, how is that impacting, in our particular instance, their, their dietary periodization behaviors? Because ultimately, we want to help somebody do that behavior. We want to help people fuel smarter and perform better, in a nutshell. And then how we do that is we try to translate some some complex science into some some really simple and practical nutritional practices that are completely personalized to you. Mm. So we're we're definitely exploring the space. We're we're incredibly lucky to have Xiaoxi on board in, in the team with the app. And, and we all sort of met via different PhD processes. So my PhD, I met a guy at UCL who was doing his PhD and she was doing her MSc, then went to do her PhD similar backgrounds or sorry completely different backgrounds similar interests and you know you start to come together and and brainstorm and a great team behind that in there as well so more people from behavioral science because like we could talk about behavioral science here it doesn't mean i'm a behavioral scientist it just means i've I've probably read enough papers to hold a conversation Mm. but someone else has done a phd and three postdocs and then you need someone else you know you need an expert in every area to then collaboratively identify where you might challenge convention and see where disruption might be be necessary. So yeah, I think in terms of, I suppose to bring it on, we, we have we're very interested in adaptive interventions. We are running a lot of research on our, you know, it's it's called the, the Hexis Performance app at the minute. We really wanted to build a research tool first and foremost. And we've managed to, well, we ran a a beta trial before Christmas with just over a thousand athletes. And that was brilliant 
we sort of provided over 150,000 personalized recipes and 1,000 plus individualized periodized plans. We're super excited for, for 2021. Mm. Um, we're working on a few a few big things behind the scenes, which I can't wait to share, but really at the core of the platform, we've tried to make complex science easy to understand, but also easy to adhere to. And then we've tried to make it so that anyone can have a completely personalized plan to their individual requirements, you know, age, weight, Mm. sport, gender, level of exercise, intensity, type, duration. And myself and another guy called Sam Impey, who'd actually did his PhD and a few postdocs in in carbohydrate periodization, we spent the last couple of years working with with Xiaoxi to to build an algorithm that can automate that process, which is great. Mm -hmm. So that went down really well. We just can't wait to get it in more people's hands. Yeah. So, I mean, you can follow, is it hexis underscore performance on Instagram? Yeah. Uh, So definitely recommend everyone to follow that account. And is it it's still going through the development process at the moment and should be available? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're really looking at later this year. So oh. like I said, it's it's not far off now. Uh, we've kind of done our, done our first research project. We love research. So mm-hmm. if there's anyone listening out there who is interested in more research, we're, we're always open to collaboration. You know, just drop us a message on Instagram and we'll get back to you. But Academic projects we love. We love to quantify stuff. We love to to look at data. We love to talk to people, get people's opinions, and and see if we can can help contribute a solution to actually help with a with a, a real world problem, mm. as opposed to just keeping everything in papers. But we'll always publish along the way. So, uh, yeah, later this year we're we're working on a few improvements behind the scenes and we also want to write up the original research at the minute and just get it out there so we can share it with people yeah yeah oh, it's so cool that you know it's, you're very you're being very transparent with the amount of work you're putting in to make this hexes performance app as good as it can be it isn't just something you've thrown together like there's so much evidence base behind it so surely the people that are going to get involved with this app are going to know or have the, the confidence that their nutrition behavioral patterns are going to change really quite positively and they know it's going to happen very tailored to them so i think that's really exciting i'm definitely gonna i follow the instagram account so i'll keep a keep a lookout certainly right yeah we're mostly recipes at the minute but we'll we'll get some app update app updates out soon and i think i think on that you're like you're dead right like i'm a huge believer in like if you want to innovate you just have to collaborate Mm. and you know even for me i i can't be naive enough to say, I know everything about nutrition. So when we wanted to, to really work on this app, we wanted some of the, the best minds in the space. So Sam, PhD, a couple of postdocs in the area, led our first authored all of those papers. Mm. Should I pretend to be Sam? <laughs> or should we, you know, should we work together? And um, it's been brilliant to have, we've got a, a really good group of co-founders really strong academic backgrounds, everyone at PhD level either finished or finishing. And I think it has to be that way because there's there's so much rubbish out there. There's so much misinformation. People just want something that they can trust. And yeah, certainly. Yeah. Why is it? And it, it kind of that's leading into what I wanted to talk about next, actually, the next question. Because every topic, whether it be nutrition, training, SNC, uh, rehab, there's always going to be good with the bad. There's always going to be misinformation out there and there's going to be a lot of information that's highly contested. Mm-hmm. However, it feels like nutrition is the most contested out of all topics. Has there been, in your experience, that like we've talked a lot about the positives of social media and how they can be used effectively. Are you seeing some negative things coming about in the nutrition space with the use of social media? Yeah, like you said, good with the bad everywhere. Nutrition happens to be one of those spaces mm. where anyone that's on a weekend course thinks they're a nutritionist and <laughs> because they lost, you know, five kilos, they can they now think they're qualified to give advice. But mm. yeah, a hundred percent. I think if we look at the way, for example, Instagram will work, they will have their own algorithms to design your feed and tailor your feed to to what they want it to be for for advertising or engagement reasons. And you know, they're quite addictive addictive apps now what we've seen with social media is because they know your interests 
because they know what you like. So let's say it's healthy eating, for example. They'll show you more people that you're more interested in who share the same ideologies as you. So next time you log in, you'll see lots of people that you know eat kale and quinoa and they, they don't eat certain foods and they'll only do X, Y, or Z. And basically what you start to get is a skewed sense of reality. So what you'll find is that social media can lead to a, a disillusioned idea of what is normal. So people's idea of normal could be more based on their feed as opposed to what they see in real life because the thousand accounts that they follow all do you know what they want what they think they want to do and then they think they should be doing what they want to do what they don't realize is that's been carefully curated for them to drive engagement maybe sell products promote ads mm. and i think that's just one thing for people to take with a pinch of salt there is a little bit of research specifically on eating a girl called Pixie Turner and, and Carmen Levevre Lewis, who's actually, you know, one, again, one of the co-founders on Hexus. They looked at, during some of Pixie's work, the impact of social media, specifically Instagram on orthorexia. So this, I suppose, ex, what would you call it? Like obsessive, healthy eating in inverted commas. Mm-hmm. Don't eat this, only eat whatever it might mm-hmm. be. And it did have a big impact. You know, it, it is it is changing people's perception of normality and it is having these knock-on effects on, I wouldn't always call them eating disorders, but I would certainly call it a, in a, a lot of people disordered eating. So I think that's just one, one thing for people to like, when they are going through their social media, practical tip, just just really sort of check in on, you know, the types of people that you follow. And if you find you're following a lot of the same people, it doesn't mean that how they behave is normal or how they behave is ideal. It's just how they behave based on whoever's paying them enough money to promote whatever product they're trying to sell Mm. or whatever way they're trying to eat. And we should still go back to the research and the evidence base or seek out qualified help if we, if we genuinely have a good question, because like you said, nutrition is, is riddled with misinformation and people, you know, existing in a lot of camps, you have to do this. You can't do this. You, you shouldn't do this. I think people just have to stay agnostic things are going to change. We're going to learn more over the next few years. What we believe now will likely evolve. We look at carbohydrate camp. However many years ago, we need to eat high carbs the whole time. It helps performance to then flip to say people should be keto. We know that you don't need either of those extremes. Things can be periodized depending on what your activity levels are, what your goals are, what you're trying to actually achieve. Yeah, I think it'll be an interesting space to watch over the next few years, but also interested to see what happens when it actually comes to will those social media platforms start to get regulated? Because, I mean, everyone's seeing what's happened Zuckerberg over in America, and you don't want to be in that situation. That's like when you see someone who runs a company that powerful in that situation and you use their product every day, you should start to wonder, do they have your best interest at heart or do you make the money? So. Certainly. I I was just thinking, and I was thinking maybe I was just being naive that hopefully in the future, the more we learn, the more chance that apps like Hexus that are being very heavily researched in and being transparent with the, the evidence that they're using to support how the app works will slowly supersede all of those apps where it starts to be quite obvious that uh, they have a very clear financial goal behind what they're trying to sell. Maybe that's just me being naive and maybe one day we will have a have a world where social media we only use in a positive way, but uh, we shall see. But the more and more that people like yourself and other researchers start developing these apps that have everyone else's best interests at heart, that can only mean that the topic of nutrition is heading in the right direction. Yeah, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, but unfortunately, money talks. Money does talk. Yeah, I was, I was trying to say that with a smile and realize, how, really? How do you think it's going to be? I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. Ah. I, think, I think if anything, if we, get, if we get to anywhere, I think it will be, I would like to see somewhere where people could recognize trusted resources or brands or whatever it might be. Mm that have a you know a high level of, of sort of moral integrity against a, an, an ever-evolving evidence base. Mm. I think that would be nice. I don't, I don't think we'll... It's hard to see people beating the likes of Facebook, etc. You can at least plant seeds that might grow into something and, and you have to wait and see. No, certainly. 
Cool. Well, in the last few days, I'd put a question out to Instagram, funny if we're talking about social media, uh, if there's anyone that actually wanted to ask you any questions. We've got a few coming back. Sure. The first one I just wanted to mention, because it's more of a statement than a question, was why are you so amazing? By okay. Steve Griff. <laughs> and uh, Steve Griff is definitely someone that I wanted to get on the podcast. So Steve, if you're listening, this is your warning. I'll be contacting you in the next few weeks. <laughs> but, <laughs> David, why are you so amazing? Yeah, I, I, I think that's uh, that's subjective. Well, the, the next one was uh, someone from that was wanting to get into into nutrition. Yeah. Um, what you've obviously gone the academic route. Is that the direction that you'd recommend someone go down if they wanted to work in performance nutrition, like yourself? It's a good question. It's funny you say that that because actually, I went back to the academic route, but it's it's not the route I went at the start. Okay. So I finished my undergrad and. I went straight from my undergrad into applied work. I sort of went out, tried to get some experience that kind of led to a role. So, yeah, literally after the undergrad, I started working for a rugby league team, Bradford Bulls, and then a little bit of QPR in the academy. And I kind of did my postgraduate alongside the work. And then only after about four years of applied work, went back to the PhD. Mm. After spending some time in the field and making some observations, I I was interested what I would say is that there's no right or wrong route. I think, you know, if you're dead set on going down the academic route and you know you want to be in academia and research, then you can follow that traditional path. Personally, I'm a big believer in getting out there, getting exposed to as many different environments as possible and just trying to be a sponge for a few years. Mm. I definitely learned more on the ground than I did in all of my qualifications so far. You know, actually spending time with people, working with teams, trying to solve problems. Yeah, get out there and get experience. So that would be my one thing. And I think a, a big bit of advice, a lot of people wait till they've finished university to mm. then try to get experience. As soon as you start university, before university, go places, use your own contacts, the sports that you play to see who of your friends you can help, the teams that you've played for you can help to actually start to get some exposure to what it's like to work in those environments because you'll learn so much along the way. And you want to have a, a series of experiences built up on your CV by the time you graduate because it's so tough to get a job these days anyway. Be as proactive with that as you can. And just because you don't get an opportunity in a sport that you might not want to take part in. So for example, when I was at university and before that I was always sort of into, into rugby and Gaelic football, and again, one of my first jobs was in fencing. Coming from Ireland, I hadn't seen much fencing ever. Hmm. And it was great. I learned so much. Great people, great team, great experience. Yeah, say say no to nothing if there's the potential for you to get some experience and get in and get amongst it. No, that's a wicked message. And it's definitely something that we try and convey to our students at St. Mary's. Like ultimately, I always think that your applied work or your, your work in the professional field, whether that be sort of sub-elite, elite, whatever it might be, is like your canvas. That's where you're, you're developing questions, you're problem solving, you're answering those questions. And then the education and the stuff at the university should be alongside it that is there to provide the theory, to provide the help, to allow you to develop a knowledge base that can help answer those questions. But university isn't definitely not something where like, I'll oh, do university. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. No, 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 no. no. That no, isn't yeah. what university is. It's something alongside your practice. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great message. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And then the other one was, well, that's two more. One was, I've, I wanted to say this one because I agree. Is Tagliatelli the ultimate performance food? Oh, brilliant. I know who this is from and I know he's in Australia as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because I want to say yes, because Tagliatelli <laughs> is amazing. Uh, first of all, hi, Robin. Hope everything is well. That's all I can assume. There's a good story behind that, but I'll save that one for, for another day. Yeah, great high carbohydrate, pre-exercise food to help limit fatigue during those, those high-intensity workouts. Actually, wasn't Robert. Robin? No, it wasn't Robin. No. Oh. I'll, I'll have to say, I'll say after the podcast. Right, fair enough. I, I would have had... I would, you know Robin as well. He was at St. Mary's for a while. And then the last one was 
a lot of people ask these in like podcasts or conferences. Uh, if there are like three books that you would recommend anyone to go away and read, whether that be in nutrition or um, behavior or self-development, anything like that, um, what three books would you recommend? I think three that I've probably enjoyed recently. I like Nir Eyal's book, Hooked. So again, if you're kind of, it's a slightly, a slightly less theoretical model, more of a, I suppose, a product or a service focused model to behavior. That would definitely be one that's there. Mm. I would also say Peter Thiel's Zero to One. I quite liked, I liked, liked that concept and the stories in there and the kind of the message that it conveys. In terms of the third book, maybe Daniel Kahneman, Thinking Fast and Slow. Well, that was great, mate. Just as we round up, how can people contact you if they have any questions? Yeah, sure. People can get in, in contact with us, I suppose, over over Twitter or Instagram. Um, so I, like you said, the Hexus is at Hexus underscore performance on Instagram. We're pretty responsive on that. Um, or if they want to get me, they can get me on Twitter at the Nutritionizer. So spelt like nutritionist, but with an or at the end. It's a, a misspelling on one of my first roles from one of the teams that I worked for. They, they misspelled nutritionist and it managed to stick with me since. <laughs> I thought it'd be something like the Terminator. You've just swapped that up with the nutritionator or something. Yeah, not quite. Not quite. <laughs> well, anyway, that was brilliant, mate. And everyone, definitely check out David and the Hexis Performance app on Twitter and Instagram. And keep a lookout for when the, the app is ready because I can't wait. We're definitely going to use it. Cheers, David. I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Thanks a million. Cheers, mate. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Progress Theory. All of the details and links featured are in the show notes on our website, theprogresstheory.com. If you want to hear and see more, follow us on YouTube or Instagram. Just search The Progress Theory. And we'll see you in the next episode.